when I was in seminary, uh, and I first came across some of the issues of of ministry and, and government, uh, it was a pretty challenging situation for me. In fact, uh, it came about when I'd just become licensed. I was interning at, a, at a, my first church, and so I was receiving uh, some of my salary or some of my pay from that time. And if most of you have heard my seminary story, we were like dirt poor during that season. I was full-time in seminary, working part-time. We had three kids, my wife at home. And so money was really hard to come by. So during that season, as I was getting ready to make that transition, one of the things I learned is that clergy people are considered self-employed in one sense, and then on another sense, you have a possibility there's a government, uh, because of church and state stuff, where if you have a, an, a religious objection to receiving any kind of benefit from the government, that you can opt out of uh, Social Security and FICA tax. So basically, you would have no FICA tax, which is about 15%. Usually you pay half and your employer pays half, but it's 15% total. That's not taken out, so you get all that. Now the downside of that is once you get to that retirement age, you get no benefit from Social Security or Medicaid, but you have all that money to start with and you could invest it, which I kind of like to do that myself and know that, hey, whether the government squanders their Social Security or not, at least I've taken care of it. So I thought, I'm, I'm gonna do that. They said, yeah, if you don't want them to do it, you can keep it and you can manage it yourself. So I signed on the dotted line, sounded great, and went through that whole year. And, and when I sat down to do my taxes that year, uh, I came up to that situation and actually started reading uh, the guidelines on it and researching it for myself. And I realized that the clause is not, if you just don't wanna pay these because you don't like it, you can opt out as a clergy person. The clause is actually, if you have a conscientious objection because of a religious truth in your faith that doesn't allow you to receive any benefit from the government, you can fill out this form and turn it in. And what I realized at that point is that I was in a, a bit of a quandary. I didn't have a conscientious religious objection. I couldn't go to my Bible and find a verse that says, you know, the government is evil, they're from the devil, and you should never receive any help from them at all. I mean, I looked for one. I was pretty sure I'd heard one about like that, but it wasn't in there. And so all I could see is, is staring at my tax screen, the fact that instead of receiving money back, I owed $2,000 to the government at a time when I had zero money in my account. So I was sitting there thinking, what do I do? Uh, they can never challenge me in terms of a conscientious objection because pastors do it all the time and just say, yeah, I object to that. But I knew in my heart I didn't object to it. I also knew that whatever I decided at that moment would determine the rest of my career in ministry. You can't ever change that once you start. So if I say, hey, I'm gonna sign it, that way I don't owe them $2,000, then I live with that the rest of my life. If I don't sign it, however, not only do I owe them $2,000, they're gonna get 15% of everything I ever get after that for the rest of my life. My guess is that I'm not the only person in this room that's ever been in a spot where you struggled to submit to the guidelines that your government had given you. 
Now, it may not have been a, a tax issue for you. It, it may be like a building permit that you needed, and you're going, why do I need this building permit? I can just, I'll do it myself, and you didn't want to deal with the hassle of it. Maybe it was building codes within our city. Uh, maybe it was laws that were passed or, or other situations that you didn't agree with and you struggled with. Uh, maybe it was a legal decision that you had to go through, and the courts decided this, and you didn't agree with it, and so you've been bucking that legal decision your your whole life because you disagree with it and don't want to submit to the decisions that are made. Maybe it was a local election and how the results turned out you, know, you didn't like and you're struggling with that. Or heaven forbid, it'd be a presidential election and you didn't like how the results came out. I'm just speaking hypothetically right now. And, and you're struggling to accept the direction that our country is going. How are we to respond as Christians to the government in which we live under. What does God have to, to say with this? And that's what we're going to look at today. And it's difficult enough to hear the word submit, period, in any sentence, but, but when you put the word submit and government in the same sentence, it's almost like an impossible thing for us to grasp, isn't it? So today, we want to address just that. How should we as Christians, how should we as, as people who trust in Jesus Christ respond to government authority? And, and here's what I love so much about the Bible. I don't always like what the Bible says, but what I love about it is that it addresses every single issue that you could possibly think of that we might struggle with as humans. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Romans 13, as we mentioned, and we're going to look at three, four things here in this passage. Here's the first one, the reason I should submit. In this passage, Paul's going to give us a reason why we should submit to our governing authorities. The second thing he's going to tell us is the result when I don't. What's the result when I don't in terms of the government response? And then secondly, what's my response when I don't? So what's the overall result when I don't? What's my response when I don't? And then lastly, he's going to give us two signs, two signs that we are submitting to our government. Two signs. So what's the reason? What's the result? What's my response? And then two signs we are. That's where we're going today. So the first one, right out of uh, verse 1, really clear. Paul starts with this. He says in verse 1 of chapter 13, let, um, what's that second word? Every, okay, so your translation is just like mine, right? Doesn't say with the exception of Pastor Chad, right? Mine doesn't say that. Yours probably says with the exception, you know, your name, but it says let every, right? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Don't you love it when Paul, like, right off the bat offends us with the very first words that he gives us, right? So here's my first point for you. I should submit to my governing authorities because they are instituted by God. I should submit to my governing authorities because they are instituted by God. Now, I know you're doing what I probably do. I say, okay, wait a minute. There's gotta be, this has got to mean something else in the Greek. Or this, like Paul, maybe he just had a bad hair day today, this day, and he wrote this down. He didn't really mean it. I mean, what does the rest of the Bible really say about this? Because I can't believe we just really read that. Well, I want to show you, if we go through the scriptures, what the rest of the Bible does say about this. It's pretty consistent with this idea that God is sovereign 
over all the governmental institutions that take place. We go, go back to Daniel. Daniel was a, a, a believer in God who lived within a, a non-believing or a pagan government. And this words he wrote about Nebuchadnezzar, who was actually the king of Babylon at that time, one of the arch enemies of Israel. In fact, the people who came in and, and, and ransacked Israel and took them back as hostages to Babylon, this is what God said through Daniel about them. Uh, when he was going to judge Nebuchadnezzar because of his pride, he said this, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high, that's a, a, a word that refers to God in the Hebrew is one of his names, the most high. So God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. He's speaking this to Nebuchadnezzar saying what's gonna happen to him. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Now I know some of you are distracted because you wish you could write that about our current president right now but that's not the case. This is written about Nebuchadnezzar. And what's interesting is God says both in, in, the, in the prophet Jeremiah, he was gonna use Nebuchadnezzar as his tool to bring discipline upon his own people. But now here, as Nebuchadnezzar continued to be very arrogant, God says, I'm gonna remove you and humble you and then I'm gonna place you back in because I, God, oversee every single kingdom. I institute, I put in place and I remove from places of power. God is sovereign in that passage. Look at what he see, we see in, in Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21 says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It shows that God is sovereign even in the decisions of people in places of authority. They always carry out uh, his greater will, even though it may not be his moral will. In the New Testament, we see passages like this in uh, the book of Titus. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Peter says this when he was addressing uh, the church. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Paul wasn't the only one who stated that those in places of government authority are instituted or allowed to be put there by God. Now let me clarify this. The fact that they are instituted by God, meaning he's sovereign over their appointment there, does not mean that God approves of all their behavior. Don't confuse those two things. It simply means that he's sovereign over the fact that that person is in that place. That he's still in authority and, and overall, that person, good or bad, whatever they do, is gonna carry out the greater plan that God has. 
We may not fully understand that. But, but think of this. If you've studied any kind of end times type stuff, you know that the Bible talks about an end time world ruler that will come up called the Antichrist. He will be the most powerful ruler to ever rule in the world. He'll be the most broad sweeping ruler to ever rule. And the Bible says he won't come into place until God makes it possible for him to do so. That it's the Holy Spirit right now that prevents him from being there and there'll be a time when God will withhold that and his sovereign plan will allow that person to be there to carry out God's plan for the end times of this world. Doesn't mean he approves of it, but it means that it will not happen until God says he's ready for it to happen. But he is sovereign over the placement of every ruler. The only exception the Bible gives us, and, and we're not dealing with exceptions necessarily here, but it's important that we see it. The only exception is when a government uh, requires you to violate a clear moral command of Scripture. At that point, we have the freedom to not obey or submit to our government. If they ask you or force you to do something that is clearly violating God's word, that is the only exception we see. You saw it with Daniel. Daniel did that. You saw it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into the fire as a result. So those are the only exceptions that we have as Christians. And then it comes to even how we do it at that point is not often how we uh, do it in our nation. So I should submit to my governing authorities because they are instituted by God. Second thing is what happens or what's the result when I don't? Paul says this, Therefore, in conclusion or summary from this point, he says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So this is pretty straightforward. Here's your point. When I resist authority, I'm rebelling against God and bring judgment on myself. I have no one else to blame for what happens when I'm judged or I receive some kind of punishment because I'm resisting authority. Now that's hard for us as Americans because we live in a nation, and this is what's interesting, we like to think our nation is you know, the first Christian nation or godly nation ever, but you know that our whole nation started by not obeying this passage of scripture, right? We rebelled against the British who sent us over and kind of came over and started that, and that rebellion is what started this nation. Our whole nation, that's part of our roots. The reason we reject and often rebel against authority because it's the heart of who we are as a nation. That's just a little thought for you. We sometimes think we're a great Christian nation, and there certainly are Christian roots in our nation, but there are also times when we just did not follow what God says, uh, and it doesn't mean that it got us where we wanted to be. So he's saying here, if we resist what God has appointed, we will incur judgment. We're going to experience those things. Now, in the th second part we see here, the third question is, what's my response when I don't submit? What's my response? And Paul says here in verses 3 and 4, he says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad and he's speaking again in general, right? Policemen don't drive around looking for people who are obeying the speed limit and pull them over and give them tickets. No, they do it for people who are breaking the law. That's the big purpose. In general, they don't go to your home when you're living peaceably and slap you in cuffs and say, I'm taking you home. This home is way too quiet. We need more domestic violence around here. 
That, that doesn't happen as a whole. So they're there to, to take, keep good conduct and address poor conduct. But he says, would you, and this is a question that's interesting in English, in the Greek it would make more sense, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? This is what Paul is saying, and this would be a better English translation. Wouldn't you want to have no fear of the ones who are in authority? That's the question Paul's asking. Wouldn't you want to not be afraid of the police? Wouldn't you not want to be afraid of, of those in authority over you? He's asking a rhetorical question, and all of us are going, well, yeah, I wish I could feel that way. Well, Paul tells us how. Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. So here's my point for you. The reason I am afraid of authority is because I am choosing to do wrong. The reason I'm afraid of authority is because I'm choosing to do wrong. Now let me make a little disclaimer up front. There certainly are unique situations in which a person is wrongly taken advantage of by the authorities even while doing good. Okay, we all know that. That's not the rule, that's the exception. But it does happen, okay? That's not, Paul's point here in this passage is not to address the minority of exceptions that do happen, and when that does happen in our lives, that can impact us in such a way that causes us to have a fearful response to those in authority because we've been wrongly harmed from. I, I get that, the Bible does talk about that, that's another message for another time, but in this case we're talking about as a whole. And here's my question for you. Paul's saying, if you don't wanna be afraid of authority, then ask yourself some questions. What are you doing, maybe on your end, that might cause you to have a fear of authority? Are you disobeying in certain circumstances that causes you to be afraid of them? See, what we do is we disobey and we push the boundaries, we go outside them, and then we get upset at authority because authority is there to hold us accountable for behaviors that overall is not healthy for our community. And that's the mindset Paul's trying to address in us. I remember, for me, I'll give you a simple illustration, is, is it took me years as an adult Christian driver to not panic every time I saw a police car on the freeway or in the city when you, you were driving around. It's like, oh, you immediately, your foot just reacts and goes over to the brake. But for years, even at that point, I'd come to that age in my life where I thought, you know, I'm, speeding really doesn't benefit me that much. You know, it doesn't save you nearly as much time as you think, and then you're stressed the whole time because you're looking for that. I'm just going to follow the rules, and it made my driving a lot more relaxed. But my body still wouldn't react that way because I'd spent a majority of my young years driving always disobeying the speed limit. And so I was constantly fearful of cops. And so it took years of even doing it right for me to be able to turn it around and say, wait a minute, these guys are on my side. I don't have to worry about them. I'm driving the speed limit. You get where I'm coming from? Let me ask you this question. If there is a criminal walking around in your neighborhood tonight and he was scoping out your home and when he started walking onto your block, he saw a cop car sitting in the street right near your home, would you want him to be afraid of that cop and get out of there? Or would you want him to blow off that cop and continue and rob your home? I think I can guess your answer. 
Every single one of you would want him to be fearful of that cop. Why? Because he's doing something wrong. And that fear protects you. Here's my question then. How can you have a double standard when that fear in him doing wrong is for your good, but your fear, when you do wrong, you want to blame the authorities for that? See, Paul is telling us they are there for our good, and in general, that's exactly what authority brings in our lives. The problem often resides with us because we do not want to do what is right. Fourth thing we see in here is uh, one of the things, uh, one of the signs in which I'm submitting to my government. So if I haven't offended you yet, this will pretty much do it for sure. Uh, It says in verse four, for he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. Excuse me, I'm going on to five. Therefore, he says, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So he's repeating his principle from verse one. But then he goes on in verse six to say this, for because of this, this is pointing forward, you also pay taxes. Why? For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Meaning, this is why we pay taxes. These authorities, they're God's ministers. They're attending to this. What? They're attending to the fact that they're rewarding what is good and they're protecting what is bad. They're bringing order to our communities, to our cities, to our nation. They are able to full-time dedicate themselves to these tasks because we pay them taxes. They don't have to work another job and then try to go home and figure out what's the best way to organize the stoplights on McPherson and where should we put roads in our city and where do we need to deploy policemen all around. They get to do that full time, thinking about the good of our whole community because we support them in doing that. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. So my point is this for us, is I should pay, I pay taxes because I benefit from the full-time protection of my government. I pay taxes because I benefit from the full-time protection my government provides. Let me just help you think through this a little bit, because most of us never think about this. In fact, I don't even give it as much thought, and just going through this exercise really kind of turned my heart a little bit in some areas that I struggle because I just finished doing my taxes. And I always hate tax time because it's like, oh man, you, know, you never know what you're gonna end up getting or not getting or having to pay in when you go through it. But here's some things I just jotted down that maybe we didn't think of. Most of us have given little thought to just how much our government provides for us. The fact that you had roads to drive on to get here today is because you have a government that's thought through that process and made it possible for you to commute. Uh, there, the fact that you, uh, there's some semblance of order in our streets, there's traffic laws, there's lights, there's stripes, and even though most of us in Laredo don't follow them, at least they're there, you know, <laughs> that if we wanted to, it would be a safe place to drive, right? Again, that's the government's fault, right, that we don't follow them and, and they're just optional. There are street lamps with electricity, to make our, city, our, our communities safer, water run to our homes, sewage removed from our homes. We have law enforcement that provide order and enforce laws for our protection. We have a legislative branch that evaluates new laws, a ju- judicial branch that interprets our laws and sometimes writes their own, as we've learned. Certainly none of these aspects of our government are perfect. 
Some even have corruption. Certainly none of us have ever been less than perfect in our own homes, right? My point is simply this. As a whole, government is a tremendous blessing to us and brings a lot of good. And if you still struggle to accept that, here would be my challenge to you. Pick any six nations in the world. Go live in them for a year apiece and then come back and share your opinion with me. But until you do that, you don't understand. You haven't taken the time to see how much of a blessing the authorities in our government really are. As imperfect as they are, they're just like us. And I'm not saying that to minimize any of the issues that are there. I'm simply saying we need to step back and see the big picture. So let me just meddle for a little bit, since it just happens to be tax time. When you cheat on your taxes, you cheat God. That's what this passage is saying. You're cheating the ministers that God has put in place to care for us, to overlook us, to look over us, not to overlook us. Sometimes they do that as well, right? But, so I'm not, what I'm not saying by this is, is I'm not saying pay as much taxes as you possibly can. You won't hear that come out of my mouth. What I am saying is, hey, get every deduction you can. They're legally there. Do that. Do whatever you can to reduce your taxes, but do not compromise your integrity and don't break the law and don't misrepresent yourself when you do that. You are cheating God when you do that. Let me turn the tables a little bit on you. Okay, any employer, any employer, like the government is, any employer knows if you own a business or employ any number of people, your greatest expense as an employer is your payroll. The most you put out in any business you do is paying for the people that work for you. And any employer goes, oh man, I hate having to pay payroll because it's such a huge chunk of the money we have as a business. What would you think if your, payroll, your, your employer says, you know what? I'm gonna find ways I can pay my employees less. In fact, I'm gonna cheat them. I'm only gonna give them half of what we should have given them this month because that'll keep more money for me. I guarantee you, you'd be livid if your employer did that to you. And rightly so. He'd be cheating you, wouldn't he? But guess what you do when you cheat your taxes? You do the exact same thing because those taxes pay the very people who help bring these good things to our community. And just as your business and your employer environment is not perfect because it's filled with imperfect people, the same is true as our government, but it doesn't mean we throw the whole thing out. So be honest, God wants you to. That's being a Christian, it's responding to our government and the way he's called us to do. Last thing we see here is uh, verse seven. Paul ends with this, and he takes it to the next level. He says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. He breaks it into two categories. If you owe money to someone, you pay it to them. If you owe respect or honor to them and in your attitude, then you pay that to them as well. And here's my point to you, is I should not just pay financial obligations, but obligations of respect also. 
Obligations of respect also. You see, simple outward conformity is never f- sufficient for God's people. We, also, we should always show respect with our attitudes as well as with our actions. To pay our taxes and then to speak negatively or derogatorily or disrespectful of our government is really not to submit at all. You're just outwardly going through something that you're not truly doing on the inside. So these are the things that we talked about. What are two signs that I'm submitting to my government? Well, we know from these two things. What comes out of my wallet and what comes out of my mouth determines whether I'm submitting to my government. What comes out of my wallet and what comes out of my mouth? Do I pay my taxes and do I speak respectfully of those in authority over me? Yeah, but Chad, I mean, come on. How can submitting to a messed up government system really be best for me? I mean, how could I possibly benefit from submitting to something like this? Does anyone really do this? Yeah, I know a guy who submitted to a government that was way worse than ours. It was a government not like ours that was of the people and for the people. This government was run by pretty much what you call a dictator. In fact, that dictator actually saw himself as a god and wanted people to see him as a god. And he wasn't surrounded with a nice government of people representing the people's needs at all. He was surrounded by a whole bunch of privileged, rich people who were in those positions purely for their own good. And yet, this man submitted anyway. This man even paid his taxes when he was required to. In fact, he submitted so much so that even when he was unjustly accused by this government, he did not revile them in turn. He didn't rampage against the government. He responded just like we're learning today. His name was Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to submit to a government. And Matthew 26 tells us that they sought out false witnesses in order to convince or convict him, but they couldn't find any. They couldn't find any that coincided together. And so they continued the trial anyways and falsely convicted him and sent him to death. And he humbly remained silent and did not revile those who reviled in return. He didn't mobilize his disciples to carry picket signs outside picketing the government. He didn't call out to all Christians of that time to to boycott the Roman Colosseum and not pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus didn't do any of those things. In fact, he didn't even exercise his rights to separation of church and state as a religious leader. That was a joke. They didn't even have that back then. He didn't. In fact, when Pilate said to him in John 19, I I have authority, Jesus, to crucify you or to set you free. Jesus' response to Pilate summarized this principle that we learn today. Jesus said, Pilate, you have no authority over me except what has been given to you from my Father in heaven. And rather than exercising an authority that Jesus rightly had, he submitted to an authority that he had placed himself under as our human representative. 
an authority that would nail him to a cross, an authority that after living a sinless, perfect life, he would then be killed like a criminal for crimes that you and I had committed. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. Yes, we have to understand that the most significant event in all of history, the most central core truth of our whole Christian faith and that everything in this whole Bible was either preparing for or is explaining afterwards the very central core truth of what salvation is as a Christian and what we celebrate as Christians came through a man who submitted to his government even to the point of death. Have you ever thought about that? So let me just leave us with a couple truths, one very general and a few very specific. What do we take away from this today? First, let me speak generally and just say this. Until your submission to an imperfect government matches or exceeds Jesus' submission to a very imperfect government, stop justifying your attitude Stop justifying your disobedience until it matches his submission. You have nothing to stand on. You see, when freedom of the press, when freedom of speech, when free enterprise or capitalism or any other political issue becomes the sword that we will die on, we have elevated our political beliefs above our worship of God. And that will never fix or solve any of the problems that our nation faces. So stop making our politics our God and start making God our God and just submitting to the system that we might have to live under. Let me get a specific with you. First is this, pay your dang taxes. I mean, it's really that simple. You don't have to like it, but understand it's God's plan for the greater good, even though it's imperfect in this time. Just pay him. You don't win that battle by cheating yourself. Second thing, Republican types, would you show respect to the Democratic types, even if you strongly disagree with them? Stop treating them like they're some kind of second-class citizen. And, and to you Democratic types, would you show respect to your Republican types and stop treating them like they're some kind of a monster? Stop making that the defining mark of who we are, because it's not. I'm embarrassed of some of how our nation's leaders have treated each other as of late. I'm embarrassed how we as, as Americans have, have responded to different things. I mean, I have uh, middle school kids I've seen that are more mature on social media than some of our, our political leaders. I have a 10-year-old daughter who has a better attitude when she doesn't get her way than many Americans have responded in these political debates lately and political decisions. I mean, come on. You're better than that, church. In fact, if we don't show the world something different, who will? 
Do you really think who's elected to office is gonna solve the problems of our nation or the world for that matter? God's the only one. And until we start acting like Christians that we're called to, this world will never know the true king, the true leader that's sovereign over everything in our nation, in our city, and in our church. Let's pray. God, thank you for these truths. These are tough ones to swallow, Lord, and, and I have to admit, in studying them, I'll be the first to raise my hand to say, I have not followed them like I ought. Lord, things have come out of my mouth about political decisions or, or people who you have said I should respect as leaders, even though I may not agree with their decisions or their policies that are less than respectful, God. So please start with me first, but forgive us as a people for not honoring you first and foremost, for not recognizing that you are sovereign over whom you put in place. And just because there are people we disagree with and how they handle things, it doesn't mean we have to act in ways that disobey your truth. Oftentimes laws are put in place that we don't have to follow them if they are things we know are wrong. We can continue to do what is right, knowing that always doing what is right will be a blessing to our community, be a blessing to our state, to our nation, and to this world. So Lord, give us the courage and strength to do just that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.